You're listening to a Monorail News production. Now, get ready to step into the magic. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Magic Time. I'm Gray Hauser, and with me today is a very special guest, Eddie Sato of Sato Studios. He's a former Disney Imagineer who came up with cool concepts like a hypothetical Tom Sawyer's Island refurbishment project that would have had you enter a crypt and go under the river, and it would have just been really awesome. And then other things that did happen, like the Disneyland Paris Main Street. You know, just the most beautiful main street that Disney's ever done. And now he's working on some really cool, um, really innovative COVID-19 testing ideas. And we're going to get into all of that um, in just a few minutes. Eddie, how are you doing? Great. Great to be here. You know, it's really always exciting whenever we can talk to um, Imagineers because you guys kind of have a unique way of looking at things, um, especially, you know, major challenges like COVID-19 that are really um, consuming every aspect of our life. But before we get to that, I just really wanted to ask you, you know, how did you get into Imagineering? Because I know your first job there was Main Street for Disneyland Paris. Right, exactly. So, uh, like many people, you know, it's a, it's not a direct path. Uh, I actually started out at what was America's number one, number three theme park at the time, which was Knott's Berry Farm. <coughs> Excuse me. And after working there for several years, moved into another company called Landmark Entertainment, which Ward Kimball once called the poor man's wed or the poor man's imagineering. And then uh, from there, Tony Baxter had seen some of the work. And Tony Baxter is kind of a Disney legend, at least imagineering legend. And and he'd seen some of my 19th century work and Jules Verne submarines and things I've been doing for others and uh, invited me, which was a wonderful opportunity to be part of imagineering and come in sort of as an executive uh, designer to to kind of create this new main street that they wanted to do in Paris, France. Right. So, you know, Main Street's been built, obviously, at this point, two times prior. or Yeah, two times prior with Disneyland, Disney World, and then they had the World Bazaar in Tokyo. So what made this Main Street different? Now, I know that there was the early concept, which I really want to talk about, is the gangster Main Street. <laughs> the gangster major. Well, it was really a 1920s theme. And I think probably the concept of gangster, which we really didn't want to do, we were going to do, you know, Keystone cops are a lot different than gangsters that, you know, you make something funny and light. You don't, you don't, you don't do something uh, that looks uh, unsavory or, or violent. Right. So one of the movies I always, always liked growing up was a movie called some like it hot with Marilyn Monroe and the gangsters, there were goofy uh, and they had speakeasies then. And of course, you know, the whole motivation for this wasn't just to change Main Street. It was really to look at what Europeans at that time, uh, what your audience in Europe was going to really understand or relate to about the United States. And the first time Europeans really looked in, in an envious way at what was going on across the sea was when uh, jazz emerged. Wow, a new type of music and excitement of the 1920s. So he said, well, what if we could just turn the clock forward just enough to access all that exciting music and maybe to have a live show, you know, sort of like the Golden Horseshoe in Frontierland is a live show, have a, a speakeasy where you enter, you know, a funeral parlor or a flower shop or some front, as they would call it, a board a turntable and whoosh, 
you're flipped and there you are in all the action with the dancers and the music and and really make it a fun kind of like a dinner show kind of a thing so you know it would be the disney version just as much as larceny and looting is is different than piracy in the pirates of the caribbean right right so this has like a really awesome idea and i just wonder how did it not happen like well you know it's kind of it's a good question and so uh, you know, uh, really for me, I love to do creative new things. I don't want to repeat myself or, you know, the prospect of standing at a photocopier and just building another Walt Disney World Main Street or Tokyo Main Street. That just did not appeal to me. But this notion that Tony Baxter was ex- as excited as I was about a 1920s theme, this gave me a license to be a designer again. And so we kind of went crazy a little bit. We We created an elevated train system. You know, uh, like you would find in Chicago, but beautifully done, more like a people mover, a Victorian people mover than a real full scale train. But people could wait underneath the tracks and watch the parade. It would be on the right hand side of the street if you were facing the castle. So we had all kinds of attractions. And I mean, we really made Main Street into more of a land with lots to do uh, more than the shopping center that, that some feel it is today. Right. But, you know. What you guys did in that building the, you know, third time around of the 1899-1900 Main Street, I think it's the most beautiful rendition of that. So I think Disneyland Paris is the most beautiful Disney Castle Park, especially, you know, up to that time. And mm. I watched – go ahead. No, you know, and it, well, it's, it's interesting you say that. So to answer your question about why is it not there? Why did we not do the 20s? A, it was very expensive. It was more than, you know, it was a land now. It was more than a, a, a shopping and dining area. It really had richness. And I think the audience would have related to it. We really pushed it. We did lots of exciting things in there that you've never seen in a Main Street. We even took American art like Edward Hopper's Nighthawks painting, which is a famous kind of 1920s painting of a diner. We were going to build the diner. So Europeans would look at this and go, wait a minute, was that that painting? We were trying to do the cultural side of the United States that they would relate to. So we had all that. But to go to your point, Greg, is gangster. I think what happened was Michael Eisner got the impression that what we, what Europeans might get from this is that we had lost our innocence as a culture and that it would be a gangster place, you know, kind of like the untouchables, which is a popular movie at the time. Um, I never got a chance to really present the final idea or even complete developing it. We were very close. We spent about a year on it. Um, and I think had he seen the treatment, the Keystone cops, Laurel and Hardy treatment of it, we wanted to do, it might've, it might've um, quelled his, his, uh, his nervousness about doing his fear, right. His fear of doing it. So uh, with that in mind, we were a year behind and had to do a different main street, but still we had to relate to the audience. And if you're living in Paris and I lived in Paris, I mean, it's literally the most highly detailed, lush, immersive, atmospheric city you could live in, maybe other than Venice, Italy. It's just incredible, right? right? So how do you create something that Europeans would find pleasurable? Well, Europeans like to take their kids to museums and things like that. So we tried to put a lot of culture, richness, layers of history and story into the main street. So they walk in and, they, and they're not greeted with American sort of merchandising. They're greeted with culture. 
American art was something we hung on to. We licensed the artwork of Gibson and Leyendecker and, and really tried to put American artists and illustrators, you know, as part of the work that we were doing. Even the manhole covers in the street gray are Smithsonian artifacts from different periods of the cast iron designs that were beautiful in, in American cities. So we didn't want to be political, but we wanted to be cultural and sort of kind of focus on the Americana and giving Europeans a very rich experience. Right. And, you know, I know that you have the arcades, which I'm so jealous of. Like, I wish we could have that in Florida. Um, but you have the one that's the Liberty Arcade. And it's the history of the Statue of Liberty and the relationship between the United States and France. And then you have the other arcade on the other side of the street is all patent models. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, those are the, the little treats. And we found out one of the um, operations directors, I think it was Jim Cora, said to me, I said, I said, so how do you think the park's doing? This is the opening month or so. And he goes, do you know how long they spend in Main Street? I go, I have no idea. No, what? Two hours. I go, why is the train broken down? I mean, why is it is the horse car that slow? <laughs> he said, no, they're reading all the plaques. They're looking. Europeans love museums. They're, they, they've grown up with museums. It's not something they run past. If there's something interesting, they will stop and look at it, which is a great credit to the audience and makes me feel good about putting that extra effort that our team put into creating these little exhibits. I mean, because you go to Walt Disney World here and people are literally running down the street like, I gotta get to Space Mountain. Everybody out of my way. <laughs> right, um, right, right. And you know, in right. Paris, it's like, oh, right. look, a plaque. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and you have to you have to you have to live up to it. You have to put an artifact in there that really catches people's interest or something that's uh, worthy of uh, your close inspection, as they say. So the Statue of Liberty, you know, when you think about it, it was a gift from an individual in France to the United States and really a culture, and it's a cultural gift from France, but Disneyland as a cultural icon is probably the, the most extensive thing built on European soil in uh, American history. So you really wanted to show that it's more than Elvis and hamburgers and so forth. You wanna go further and you wanna really show art and humanity and color and design. And so we, you know, we went to even using wall coverings that were American wall coverings or importing light fixtures that we had to rewire that were examples of American antiques, almost like you're going to a case study of 19th century America because Victorians started in England, Queen Victoria, right? Well, you know, I was looking at a, a video um, that y'all put together. It was you and there was Another clip I saw was Tim Delaney, and it was put together by y'all for um, cast members so they could really get a feeling, you know, for what um, the park was all about and the detailing. And one of the things you mentioned was like at that time, you, the cashier, wouldn't handle change. There would be this little elevator almost like thing that would send the box with the money upstairs. And then they would do the change up there and then it would come back down. And you even built those into the shops um, on Main Street, even though they weren't you know, functional, but they looked like they were. Well, you know, they, they, when the park opened, they did work and move. And the Emporium features this. It's called the Lampson system. It's a famous 
sort of little baskets on cables. And it's because the checkers at the counter were not allowed to make change then. They would put the money with a receipt in a basket. It would go upstairs where the money was kept in the department store. They would make the change and send it back. Some of them were pneumatic tubes. In our case, we use cables and reproduce the entire system. And, and really, the, the reason was two things. One is story to show what a department store really was like back then. The second thing is kinetics. You know, you, having empty stores or streets with no vehicles, it's dead. It feels boring. Every land from Tomorrowland with, you know, moving vehicles to Main Street with the horses and cars and buses, lands need to have a heartbeat. They need to have life. So why not have the heartbeat inside the store as well as outside the store? Because people want to sense that there's life when they're walking into a space. Right. And, you know, it's really, really funny because obviously Disneyland is like the classic and Walt Disney World feels more ornate. And the same thing kind of holds for Tokyo. But then if Walt Disney World is so much more ornate compared to Disneyland, Disneyland Paris is like 10 times that compared to Walt Disney World. Right. Like, well, you know, yeah, you know, what's funny about that. Great. Is that I had to go to our team and say, because we have a wonderful interior team from the movie, movie industry and so forth. I said, let's don't just put moldings and drapes in to be more ornate because Paris is ornate. That's boring to Europeans. They live in a world of ornate. What we have to do is anytime you make something, if it's not worth taking a picture of, we shouldn't have built it. So it has to be ornate with a story. And you seem to remember the, uh, the, the cable system in the Emporium, the Lampson system, or, you know, we did candy columns in the candy store that were glass with candies in them. These are the things t- people remember. They can only find at Disneyland. And we always have to remember that because, you know, Paris is its own theme park, isn't it? Right. Now, I have to right. confess, I've never actually been to Paris. This is purely based on like photos I've seen. Um which, it's amazing. Trust which me. It goes <laughs> to show you what a good liar I am. Because if you heard uh, the beginning of this podcast, you would assume I'd been there. And now I'm just lying to you. Uh, I've never been there. It could be awful. I mean, it's not, but it could be. And I would tell you it's great. Um, well, <laughs> I think the funny thing, Gray, is that, you know, Paris is iconic as a city. I mean, the Sleeping Beauty Castle of Paris, of course, is the Eiffel Tower. Um, if you look at the way uh, it's laid out, it's just an incredible city and it's so immersive and it's survived over the centuries because it's kept its romance. It holds together as a place. There's a lot of lessons in theme park design from going to a place like Paris I think, and uh, living in it and being immersed in it taught me what I had to do as a designer to make Disneyland better. One of them was putting pavers instead of asphalt uh, down Main Street and working with operations to come up with a way of doing brick pavers like they used to in real streets. Why? Because Paris has cobblestones. It's still a period place. Why would you pay to come into Disneyland and find what's supposed to be 1890 and it's got modern asphalt in it like we have in our other parks. Well, now the other parks have actually changed. A lot of, a lot of the stuff we brought back from Europe uh, found its way into the other main streets. Right. And it's going to get clear that Disneyland Paris isn't awful and that we have Eddie here and Tim here as proof that it's not right. Um, and I think you can, you can tell that because it's even rubbed off of people like me who haven't been, who've just heard it being so awesome. They've seen the YouTube videos and whatnot, and we can talk about it like we've been there, 
but we haven't. You know, like I've never been to the park in <laughs> Shanghai, but I know it's amazing. Right. I've not, I've not been to Shanghai myself. So moving um, back home, the place I actually have been, um, Disneyland Park in California, you know, during the Paul Pressler age, which was kind of the, like the dark age, you know, um, <laughs> um, he was like, all right, guys, the rafts of Tom Sawyer's Island, they cost way too much money. We have to get rid of it and maybe the whole island. And then you were on vacation in Hawaii and really came up with this magical solution. Well, you know, it's kind of funny that um, there was a very, there's some dark times. I mean, the pendulum swings both ways. And when attendance goes down, um, sometimes you have to save operating costs and things. And so, you know, there's there's always proposals out there from management. Well, you know, what if we got rid of this ride? Actually, they took the Skyway out, you know, that was a high labor cost and would have been expensive to upgrade for modern codes and so forth. So, you know, some of these rides, they just leave you know, because they kept adding operating costs. And so, you know, I got to learn, frankly, more about the business side of these theme parks by being down at Disneyland after coming home from Paris. But to answer your question, yes, I go to Hawaii. And one of the things I'd always sort of dreamed of and and felt was that, you know, we don't have, we used to have more historical reference in the parks, like the Columbia sailing ship isn't based on any movie. It's, it's based on, on the first American ship to circumnavigate the world. So, if if you look at that, I, I always thought that it was interesting that at the Pirates of the Caribbean, when you board your boat, if you look up, you'll see a sign that says Lafitte's Landing. There's even a Lafitte's anchor sitting out there. I thought, well, you know, Jean Lafitte is an interesting character. So I went and I bought his memoirs, at least his disputed memoirs, his controversial memoirs, and read them and was fascinated by this man's history. And also there's some other history books about Andrew Jackson and, and, and how Lafitte worked with the United States government. It was just interesting things. I thought, well, here's a great little fact. Right across from New Orleans, Lafitte used to operate an island called Barataria. And that was sort of a thieves market. Imagine a big flea market of stolen stuff from Spanish ships that you could <laughs> go over there and buy things. So, hey, what do you want to do tonight? Let's don't go to the mall. Let's go to the real pirate swap meet going on over here. And people would get in boats, wealthy people, and go across to this island where Lafitte and his group would sell, uh, you know, and kind of merchandise over there a little bit. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. We have an island right across from New Orleans Square. So I thought, well, if you call it Lafitte's Island and you uh, and you did get rid of the rafts because they wanted to do that, what would you do? I thought, well, what if we created a great tunnel? And in Paris, I had been to the catacombs. And literally, this is an underground series of tunnels where uh, skulls and bones were stored Um, frankly, from people that died during the uh, revolution, French Revolution. And they put them down there. And I thought, what if you actually, you know, entered a crypt over by the Haunted Mansion, which was Lafitte's crypt, and you went down a mysterious staircase, and it was dark and dank, and you could see the grave robbers had already broken down the wooden walls, and they removed stones. So something had been looted here in the past. But as you get deeper and deeper, it gets wetter and damper, and finally you see the Empire de la Mort, the Empire of the Dead, and there they are, all the skulls from all the different crews and ships that had been sacked. And as you work your way deeper and deeper and deeper, you find yourself in the hold of a ship and you realize you're actually in a buried ship. And when you come up the steps, now the bright sunlight blinds you because you're on an island. You've actually gone under the river. 
You never realized it. Now you're in that secret world of Jean Lafitte with all kinds of exciting and fun things to do and caves and, you know, and you, you would do a lot of the treatment they've done today. Um, but anyway, that was just a, a, a pitch with some sketches and designs and things like that. So it was kind of fun. I guess I got carried away there. It's taken on a life of its own. I don't know if you've heard of Offhand Disney on YouTube. Sure, I've seen the video. And how much of that is accurate? Like, can I go message him and be like, dude, you're right. I just talked to Eddie, and he told me that you're right. Um, how much of that is um, is wishful thinking, and how much of that is um, – could possibly be true if we indulge a little bit? Well, the way I look at it is that it's not true. It should be. But anyway, I feel that when I had just done the attraction design, it was primarily restricted to the island and the tunnels and putting the Lafitte crypt across from the mansion because that was the right location for it to cross the river. So I did that. But I kind of, you know, I sort of acknowledged that there was the anchor and there's a few other things that were there. But um, it's funny. I didn't really... Think through the fact that, you know, Andrew Jackson was a mannequin over there on the Tom Sawyer Island. The fans themselves, kind of which I actually appreciate, take the story and run with it and they go further and further and further. Of course, it does connect all these attractions together, uh, you know, but, but I think people made much deeper and more dramatic connections than I probably ever could have. But I, I think the idea of a meta theme or this idea that you can you can have stories that link lands together or or bind attractions together is fascinating. And uh, I don't know if if I had the opportunity, I'd probably do an augmented reality app of Lafitte for the park. I think that would be really fun. Stop giving me ideas about things that aren't going to happen. Okay, like that's the best idea I've ever heard. We're making a lot of things happen over here. We do lots of kind of super cool secret stuff. So. Who knows? Super cool secret stuff. Yeah, we're always doing something kind of secret. I work for a lot of secret clients. So secret clients, and and now you have this idea about COVID testing, and and I was telling a friend who's a medical laboratory scientist, and he's like, "I I don't see it, man. Like, how's this going to work?" And let's just kind of talk about it, and then maybe we can delve deeper. And you can, sure. you know, possibly address okay. some of the the criticisms that I've just been talking to people, you know, in the field who, you know, like this guy's the kind of guy who's going to like actually read all the peer reviewed papers before he takes the vaccine. You know, like this is mm-hmm. the guy well, who it's hard Frankly, to convince him. Um, but maybe we can work on him a little bit in this podcast episode. So just kind of give me the, the brief overview, and then we can delve deep. The brief overview is this distancing and masks and, and, and killing off fireworks and parades and all the moments that people pay a fortune to come for theme parks for and stadiums to be at a concert and hold your lighter up for an encore or, or be with the home team fans screaming, you know, with the fans or friends from your community that are total strangers for your favorite team. All of that is an endangered species when you make every venue, including Disneyland, into a hospital. When you make these places in the hospitals and everyone's wearing masks and they're wary of each other, 
That is not fun. You can't watch your kid. You can't even see your child smile when they're hugging a character because you're not even allowed to hug the character. And if you take care, take away fireworks and parades and all that, you're really ruining the value proposition of a park. And you've hurt the capacity because no, you can't put enough people through it. So short, simply put, it's a death spiral. It is a death spiral for the business of running the park and for the guest that wants to enjoy it. And I'm not going to sit down and watch Walt Disney's or any, the stadium, the, you know, the field of dreams, any, I'm not going to let any of that go without a fight. And so I believe in something really simple, get rid of the hospital inside of theme parks and treat the theme park more like an airport where you walk through security. And then once you're through security and you're considered to be safe, then you're carefree. You're not worried about, you know, a bomb in some lady's purse. You're not worried about any of those things. So what that means is you got to do the greatest uh, COVID test known to man at the front door and make it fun, make it hassle free. So people will actually come to the park, but we have to get rid of the masks. And so we're working with different technical firms now that actually have COVID tests in the lab that are less than 60 seconds with an insanely high accuracy rate. I'm talking about, you know, this is in the high 90% accuracy rates and that can move enough people through at a short enough period of time. That is what we need. And so to me, let's say there's a breathalyzer. And when you breathe through the little breathalyzer, the computer can see the virus, Gray. It can see right. that you're contagious or not. It sees it electronically. So it's, you know, either it's there or it's not. So imagine we make it fun. We don't put you in some kiosk and have a line down the block. We walk you into some kind of a magic cave and there's this giant machine inside and people are distanced around this machine and they're given a little device and they blow through that into the machine. And as they blow, they can see on the screen, this bubble getting bigger and bigger and bigger and they know they've blown enough. And now you can see on the screen what is inside your breath for real. It's this sparkling weird thing. And then pretty soon these bubbles come out of the machine and lead you down the path inside this cave and they start disappearing as you're being cleared. So within 60 seconds, when you realize there's no bubbles left around you, you're safe. You're good to go. You look over and your handbag or your parcel you've dropped off for, for security, that's been looked at while you're busy doing that. So you don't even have to worry about it. You grab that. Your kid looks and goes, Dad, that was so fun. I want to do that again. I love that bubble thing. Cool. Let's go do it. And they walk right into the park. Make, if it's a sports game, it's the mascot of the team that leads you through it. But make it fun. Make it hassle-free. Walt Disney would not you know, just put a bunch of kiosks in front of a park. So I'm just looking at this and saying, how do you aim higher? How do we go for the highest level? Because human life is the most valuable thing there is. We're not going to compromise for money or anything else or a junkie test or, or letting, you know, we're only going to allow well people into the best experience they fell in love with. And that's the end of the story. Right. So I was watching, I think it was on NBC, and it was a bit about the breathalyzer test. And I saw, you know, they had like the prototype thing there that's being shipped to San Diego and being shipped to places in like London and, you know, all these different places. And um, it's something about it can like detect the gases that are coming out in your breath that are you know, in your lungs. And I mean, obviously, it's way over my head. I'm not, you know, a doctor. Um, I couldn't really tell you how those things work. But let's say the breathalyzer thing doesn't pan out. Do we have like backup plans? 
Well, we're actually, what we do for clients, Gray, is we look at several different technologies because there's several different types of testing that you could do. So you only pick the right one with the highest uh, level of capacity at the same time as the highest accuracy and cost per person, time, and so forth. So it's kind of an equation that you want to work out for each one. Now, it so happens there's two different companies. where We talk to the professors. I have a physicist as part of our team that myth busts all of this because you could imagine the gold rush of snake oil ideas out there because it's chasing investment. So there's all these claims out there. And what happens is companies make claims of high test results, but it's in the lab. It's not what happens in a theme park when there's a little old lady in a wheelchair that it's not tall enough to hit the machine. There's all those things that kind of happen that people like me are used to and understand. And we put my experience with the scientists and the physicists and we find the very best possible solution. Now, it so happens the breathalyzer is you know going before you – know, there's a lot of different breathalyzers. The one we're looking at uses a special uh, electronic wave that senses the virus. And frankly, if it, if it dictates and finds other viruses, it actually catalogs those for future pandemics. Could you imagine that? Right. So right. people say to me all the time, I'm surprised you haven't jumped up and said it yet. Well, Eddie, when there's a vaccine, you won't need any of this. Well, the fact of the matter is we're still getting checked at airports with the lowest terror level in years because people don't want to fly in a plane and worry about a bomb. The same thing is true. I mean, this is the 45th anniversary of Jaws, and that was a rubber shark, and people still won't go back in the water. So we have to reassure people psychologically. We have to give them the highest medical uh, result possible. And, you know, if, if you brought, you know, if you came out and one member of your party looked like they weren't going to pass, we would put them into an even stricter test to make sure that it wasn't our fault. Or they would test at home and come out and we just verify it at the front door so no one's turned away. So there's a lot of wonderful thinking we've been putting into this. But I think the difference is we're not a bunch of doctors handing catalog tear sheets to operators. We're imagineers. We're coming in and saying, how do you make this a good experience for people? How do you manage it in a way that it is medical? And yet it's also um, considerate of how people actually act in social situations. And that testing really hasn't gone on for most of these things we see uh, on the news every night. There's another test of, oh, it's got a high result. Well, what happens in the real world? It's, it's, it could be testing against a, a perfect viral sample, but not like you just said, Gray. Well, you know, when all these gases that come out of your breath, the virus is in a cloud as it's going by the breathalyzer. Well, these systems actually, almost like sampling a compact disc in an in a electronic computer, it oversamples. We look at it many, many times before a decision's made. Right. So I, I'm not a physicist myself, but I'm a myth buster person because I don't want my own reputation, frankly, to be tied up with things that don't work. Right. No, that's totally, totally understandable. And, you know, what I was thinking about um, is that it is a psychological thing, right? That I'm not sure if when this thing is over, let's pray the president's right and we can get a vaccine at least beginning to be manufactured by the end of the year, by early next year. All right, let's assume we, we get this vaccine in the hands of most people by the end of this next year. I'm not so sure that people will want to go back to life as it was in 2019. Right? Like, are we going to be hyper conscious of hygiene? Are we going to be like Asia where they do wear masks even if you have like the flu? Right? Like, is, you know, are we coming into a new normal? 
um, you, you know, that is going to change the way we live and the way we experience these things. And then what can people like you do to make us a little less worried about the, that when we do go on vacation and we go to Walt Disney World or Universal or wherever we're going? Right. Well, you know, I think that the, the proof is in the evidence. I mean, this is, you know, this is like life safety on a theme park attraction, you know. Um, to me, that's a very, very serious thing. You design an attraction, it's got to be safe. You, you have double redundancy, well, you know, which means that if one thing fails, there's a backup to it. Well, well, the same thing would be true with this testing and everything else we're doing. And I feel like people want transparency. They don't want you to just tell them that it's good. And frankly, I think the worst thing that's ever been done is temperature testing, where people take your temperature and then they go, oh, okay, you're all right. And then you have to wear a mask and they treat you like you're sick for the rest of the day. Well, then what did the temperature test do? Was that just people at death's door? You know, what did that really mean? <laughs> so we, well, it's sort of true. I mean, I find that to be really ridiculous. So, you know, maybe you combine several technologies. So at one point inside the park, we're using cameras, you're monitoring temperature. You're always looking at things. The deal is if you can convince people that Disneyland's the happiest place on earth or a theme park, why can't you also convince them it's the safest place? And you show it by the way you maintain it, how you treat people, and, and the way that the entry sequence is done. And maybe it shows you, you know, visually, you can see what the microscope saw when it was looking at your breath. And it turns green to show you you're all right. And you're like, wow. I, matter of fact, it's not even me that I care about. I care about that person that looks like they haven't bathed in a month that just walked through. I want to make sure that person's not sick. And you see the green thing go on over them. Good. I'm glad they tested that person. I'm glad every person had an equal test and that everybody has been tested. Right. So you know? this is not like my friend who's a medical scientist was concerned that you would. All right. We're going to test everybody when they come in the door and then we're going to do nothing else for the rest of the day. This would be well, one component of a multifaceted um, thing. Well, remember, though, there's a lot of science here. And if you if you are not contagious, if germs are not coming out of your mouth and the machine triple checks you for that. You really shouldn't have to do a lot of other things because nobody turns contagious like within a few hours. It takes longer than that. So if you are, you know, if the, to me, I put the trust in the gate. And, of course, you could monitor things from time to time. But I don't think that people that would go be like going back to the temperature thing where everyone has to wear a mask. Either you it works or it doesn't. And you hold the bar because – you know, we value human life. It's, it's the most valuable thing of all. So we're, we're going to go for the highest possible uh, result imaginable. Not be satisfied with contagious people or, well, maybe. Frankly, that's what erodes trust in people. When you budge and you go, well, no, we, we're not really sure if you're sick or not. Right. Well, I don't want to be in that environment. I'm not, I want to sit next to people. It's like the, like the TSA. Is it impossible to get a bomb through there? I don't know. I don't, I'm, you know, I don't know, but I do know that there's enough diligence there that I feel good enough to fly and the terrorism level and things are very low. You know, they've done a good job. Right. Like you suggested, maybe you'd have, you know, cameras that can do the temperature that you would just have, you know, the guests wouldn't even be aware what's going on. But that you could right. do behind the scenes, you know, just you, you could certainly do that and you could track people in a variety of different ways. But I, I guess what I would love to see is doing a test that's so good that you don't need to do that. Right. I mean, I, I'm just saying I want it to be I'm not going to settle for the 
40% accuracy. Right. Oh, well, now we're going to, I don't think people want that. They want to go to Disneyland. They're paying a lot of money or they're going to Universal. Or they're going to a, a concert. They want to be completely forgetting about the idea that they could get sick from a particular disease. The other idea is that, you know, once these things are weaponized in the minds of bad actors, you want to protect against future pandemics. Right. So your idea would be that you would keep doing this even after we have a vaccine for COVID to keep people feeling confident and to be kind of a bulwark against um, future pandemics. Well, absolutely. Because look at the look, look at if you if you're insuring an event like a concert, you want that stadium to have a very high degree of safety because it protects you against lawsuits. It helps your insurance and everything else. And so, you know, this particular system we're looking at that uses waves basically catalogs other viruses. So it's basically building a library the longer it's in existence. So by the by the time you're at the next pandemic, they can they can switch over and say, okay, now we want you looking for this. COVID's pretty much gone now, but now we want you to add this to the list. We want you looking for that. How great would that be? Well, that would be amazing. How, it and- would be amazing. And so we're not talking about blue smoke or wouldn't it be nice? Well, there's people right now testing these technologies and we're about to take these into the public area and start doing what I'm more interested in is like, well, how does this work in a real world environment? Um, how reliable are the machines, you know, and all those kinds of things that guys like me have to worry about. Right. And this is like me being totally superficial. Like I'm the kind of guy who like, I want the metal detectors to be themed. Right. Like I don't like, you know, I, I want I do all of it to be, you know, if you're coming in through Main Street, I want even the security section to feel like it belongs in that world. Right. So your um, your testing apparatus, maybe it wouldn't necessarily have to be a cave. It could be taken and be done. It could be, be anything, like just that was just a suggestion. That's just like a people could never understand, like, what are you going to do to make it fun? So I had to have some kind of an example of what it could be as a fun process. So it could be like you say, it could be anything. Main gates are usually thematically neutral. They're styled versus being in a particular period right, right down to that. But I think there's a there's a fine line too, Gray, because what you want to do is you want to show something that doesn't look like a carnival. It also has to be trustworthy. So I think at some point you would actually see the real data of what, what, what your condition is. So people go, wow, wow, look at that. That's better than a blood test. Look at, I didn't know that about myself. That's amazing. And so people know that something real happened, that we really look at every guest, you know? So I know, obviously we don't know exactly when this is going to become mainstream, but like, when am I going to open the wall street journal or the New York times or USA today and see Eddie Soto has the solution yet when, um, well, how far I think off are we? This Friday. You'll see an article this Friday in the USA Today, I believe. I was interviewed for that, but um, it doesn't it doesn't give a date. I'm super duper careful. I don't want to get caught up in the snake oil medicine show of COVID, where people are just making announcements and then they're retracting their results. Right. I'm not put myself. It's not worth it to put myself in that position. I'd rather wait, get real data with video of people entering and going through turnstiles and showing how it works and and really having hard, hard evidence that can withstand scrutiny before we go too much further. Now, we, we're looking right now at using some testing methods very, very soon to um, be able to help stadiums 
um, do limited, limited things. Cause we need to learn. We all, everyone needs to learn like what can go wrong at the door. And, and I'm not talking about people getting sick. I'm just talking about operationally understanding the very best way to administer a test, to make sure it's done properly to how fast you can get results. There's a lot of, you know, new learning to be done just by beta testing. So right. that's kind of where we are right now. Very exciting. I mean, as a designer, um, I would love to see people go back to work and everything from, I mean, you know, from stadiums to houses of worship, all kinds of various places, airports, um, you know, to be safe for people. Wouldn't that be nice? Certainly. Wouldn't that be great? Like, that would yeah, be, that um, be yeah. it's like that song, um, uh, what nippy now? Okay, I'm not gonna sing, but uh, it reminds you by the Beach Boys. Um, wouldn't it be nice? Yes, it's that song. Um, <laughs> I, I can hear it going in my head right now. Married, yeah. Pardon? I can hear it going in my head right now. Um, so you're working on that. I noticed that you did some work outside of Disney. You did the Porsche store. And, uh, well, you know, it's funny. Yeah, we, we work with a lot of high-end brands, Ferrari and Porsche, Aston Martin and Embraer Aircraft and just different ones and some, a couple of secret ones right now. And it's so fun. And basically, we look at something and reimagine it like a business. And, and one of our clients said, how could you reimagine a Porsche dealership to make it a destination? Some of you would drive out for. And uh, the building they were going to use, or at least the location, had a basement. And so um, discussing this with the clients and why don't we put a glass floor here and we'll kind of create, you know, the Wonderground, you know, this is this fabulous Porsche Museum of Porsche heritage underneath the new cars. So they built it. It's in Santa Clarita, California. It's run by Galpin Motors, which are the premier, absolute the best you know, dealership you could work with. And so they've applied their operational expertise to something that's truly uh you know, going to turn on any Porsche fanatic. The, I think the most valuable Porsche of all time right now is under the glass floor. You see it on a turntable as you walk in the door. You're standing and you look down and there is um, number 46, the very first Porsche to ever race in Le Mans. Oh, wow. Oh, I think it's a priceless car. I'm not, I'm not sure what it got at auction, but it's like a, they, they would borrow some of those cars and have them there. But some of the cars will be in the museum and be for sale. So you're like, wow. I wish I could have that. And they go, well, you can. You want us, Do you want to go take it out? Really? Yeah, the only museum. You can buy the cars in the museum. So how fun is that? Well, Especially to a yeah. I remember in your I, video about Disneyland Paris that y'all were considering selling cars in the park at like the automobile dealer on Main Street. Just as like. exactly what we're doing. We had three cars for sale. Main Street Motors. Good memory. Good memory, Gray. Yeah, Main Street Motors. I'm like, why can't you just see the car and it's not a prop at Disneyland? Main Street should be where it's real. You just point at it and go, you know what? I want to drive it. And anyone that bought the car, I don't think anyone bought one because they made it a, you know, merchandise, more of a merchandise location fairly soon. But anyone who bought the car, the idea is they would be able to drive it out in sort of a, a parade moment down Main Street. How fun would that be? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That, that's I nuts. I just bought one. And then resold it just for the fun of having the Main Street Parade, you know. I, I could see that. I could totally see that. <laughs> um, and fun. that is one of those cases where they're like, you know, cars decrease in value thirty percent when you take them off the lot. It's like, well, right. once you drive it down Main Street, you know, then yeah. But um, it's fun. It's more fun than driving a car off a regular car lot, right? If it has to happen, it has to happen, and you might as well get a parade out of it. Exactly. 
So you're doing work for outside clients. You need a really cool sports stadium at the um, San Francisco, uh, sorry, San Diego baseball field, the score tower thing. No, we've got, we have so many fun things. If you go to sotostudios.com and you S-O-T-T-O studios, you know, we have lots of different exciting projects you can look at from Porsche, Ferrari, Aston Martin. There's, like you say, there's some sports concepts out there. There's, you know, all kinds of interesting things. A lot of them are private aircraft. If you like airplanes, we did a flying yacht, which is kind of fun called the Sky Yacht One. Um, you know, we're actually in production right now on a project working with a vendor on um, Surf Force One, a gentleman who has a Falcon uh, aircraft, loves flying around and surfing and wanted his own Malibu sort of inspired aircraft. So, it's probably got the most beautiful blue galley you've ever seen. And uh, we're putting 50,000 year carbon dated wood as his trade tables. And so it'll be, you know, 40,000 40, year wood at 40,000 feet. Wow. So that'd be kind of fun. Yeah. So and, it's and fun. We, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I'm just going to say all the projects are very different. They're always uh, something new and different to do. And then you also do voice acting. And we were talking a couple days ago, and you could do the monorail voice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the Disneyland All-Leg Monorail System. The first daily operating monorail system in the Western Hemisphere, introduced right here in Disneyland in 1959. So there you go. But as a kid, I recorded a lot of those attractions. You know, I had a lot of fun with it. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. So I do, I do a lot of different voices that I think a lot of them are still at Disneyland. Um, oh, call Shrunken Ned, the jungle's only self-service witch doctor. <laughs> so there's all kinds of fun little discoveries in Anaheim, you know, that, and that was fun. My goodness, what a great opportunity to, to get to be a Disney character a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, the oh, voice yeah. lives on forever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some some of them they change and they do other things with as you would expect, but um, but yeah, it's 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 been exciting. It's been fun. I get to be the dentist on Main Street and and uh, the voice of Space Mountain. We have ignition, you know. Oh this wow! Is power launch sequence engaged. So that was fun. Those all very very fun things to do. Imagine if you were a Disney fan, which I was as a kid. Um, that's kind of a dream come true, right? I mean, it's more than a dream come I true. Mean, let's be real. Um, sure. I mean. Eddie, you're just awesome. Where can people find you on social media? We already talked about your website, but do you have Twitter? Well, oh, sure. Like it's several. Well, you know, um, boss underscore Angelus on Twitter, boss Angelus. <laughs> and then there's um, sotostudios.com. We have our airplane and bespoke luxury site, which is sotoluxury.com. And then I just launched yesterday because the very first ride I was ever involved with, which was called the Wacky Soapbox Racers from Knott's Berry Farm. And so there's a lot of interest. It's 40 years old this year. And so there's WackySoapboxRacers.com. And if you're a fan of that ride or remember it, it's a gravity-based ride where people compete uh, with with their leaning and so forth. Very fun ride. Very popular ride. It lasted till 1996. And so that, that attraction... I just thought it would be fun to put a bunch of the old photos. I have a lot of making of stuff and kind of built a little site around it. And we're, there's a book in process that someone's doing on it. So it's kind of cool. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. For all of sure. you listening, 
You can follow me at Gray Houser on like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can follow us at Monorail News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you keep up in touch with monorailnews.com for all of your Disney Parks news. I know we just posted a story today about how Disney is extending their 30% off merchandise offer for annual pass holders at Walt Disney World. There are more awesome stories like that every day at Monorail News. Check it out. Give us a look. Bye-bye.